This is an AMI podcast. The flowers are blooming and the bees are buzzing around making honey. Lots of other amazing insects out there doing their business as well. Hey, if you leave them alone, they won't bother you. I wish Lewis knew that. That guide dog, he snaps at everything and eats it. Today on Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, it's all about honeybees and what it takes to be a blind beekeeper. Come on, Lewis, forward, find Miss Lily. Getting schooled with Miss Lily. Hey, Lily, what can you tell us about bees? Uh, I decided to focus on the feel of bees mainly, what it like feels like to be stung. I think everyone's been stung by a bee. It's not fun. I've never been stung by a bee. Wasps, yes, but bees like me. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. In the name of science, entomologist Justin O. Schmidt allowed himself to be stung by a multitude of insects, including bees, as well as wasps, ants, and sawflies. He used his data to create the Schmidt Sting Pain Index. The index rates the pain of stings on a scale of one, which is mild pain, to four extreme pain. That's kind of freaky. That is kind of nutty. Schmidt did categorize a honeybee sting as a level two on his pain index. Two out of a possibility of four? Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't want to feel a four. Oh man, yeah. No, (laughs) Schmidt has this insect sting the underside of the research subject's forearm. So far, his research has included ranking the stings of 96 different stinging insects. According to Schmidt, some of the most painful insect stings come from tarantula, hawk wasps, and warrior wasps. He describes the sting of the warrior wasp similar to being, and I quote, chained in the flow of an active volcano. That's not the worst. What the heck is a four? Oh man, I don't know. What is a four? Schmidt rated only one example of pain level four. The sting of the bullet ant. Schmidt described the sting as pure, intense, brilliant pain, like walking over flaming charcoal with a three-inch nail embedded in your heel. Why do bugs sting in the first place? Like, why don't they just fly away or crawl away? What What is it with all the stinging business? <laughs> well, according to Schmidt, many insects like bees produce venom solely as a defense mechanism. Other insects, like some ants, use venom both for defense and to capture and subdue prey. So I have to ask, why did this guy put himself through all this pain in the first place? Oh, all in the name of scientific research, my friend. Uh, Seriously, though, according to Schmidt, insect venoms have been understudied in comparison to the venom of snakes, scorpions, spiders, and mammals. And that more research on their venom would be valuable. He thinks that the venom of insect species that induce intense pain but are not lethal may be useful for the development of pharmaceuticals such as pain relievers. Insect venom contains a variety of biomolecules such as peptides and proteins. Both are made up of amino acids. Acids. Well, that would explain the pain. Uh, Dad, what's the most uh, painful sting you've ever experienced? Huh. When I was a kid, I was out with my brother. We were heading off for our, uh, to our favorite little frog pond. We had to crawl under a fence. So he's holding up the fence, and I'm on my belly, crawling through. 
and I feel all these incredible pains in my arm and I jump up and I'm hot jumping around screaming and he's grabbed me goes what's the matter what's the matter and I I can't even say and I'm just pointing at my arm and he looks and he goes hold still and he picks up this big stick and starts whacking my arm <laughs> apparently I had mm-hmm. I had crawled right through a, a nest of red ants yeah. and I, I don't know what hurt more the red ants or him hitting me with that stick Sounds like something a brother would do. <laughs> well, we did get our frogs. Let's talk to uh, my friend Dave Brown about killer wasps. So let's hear what he has to say about that. And then afterwards, we're going to talk to another guy I know. He is probably Canada's only blind beekeeper. Time for the bucket list. Giant Asian hornets, commonly referred to by the mainstream media and by myself as murder hornets, have made their way to North America. These hornets are a voracious consumer of honeybees. They have now been found on Vancouver Island. Uh, Lawrence, I know that you're not necessarily an expert in the migration patterns of insects, but how did giant Asian hornets get to North America and when do you think they arrived? Well, the best we know is that uh, they probably came in 2019. The first one, uh, the first colony or nest, they, they actually have nests in the ground, was discovered on Vancouver Island in September of 2019. But they think that uh, maybe a pregnant female had come over in the soil of a pot of maybe a bonsai plant from uh, Asia. They can be found in about 25% of uh, Asian countries. There's um, Japan is one. So we get exports from from those countries they come across in ships uh maybe one of these pregnated females was in the soil hibernating and then and woke up in canada we give them the name the the murder hornets but but that's not necessarily the reason they're, they're not murdering humans but why do we need to be concerned about this species about one third of all the food we eat is um pollinated at somewhere along the lines by honeybees. So what these these murder hornets or Asian hornets or giant Asian hornets, we'll call them murder hornets, what they do is, uh, you know, the female will come out of hibernation in the spring. She'll fly around, find a nice moist piece of dirt in the forest, and she'll dig down and start a new colony. I started a nest. She'll lay her eggs. Those eggs will hatch. The male hornets will come out. They'll busy build their nest. And um, at some point, they will start looking around for honeybees because that's their primary source of food. So one male hornet will find a, a nest of honeybees or a hive of honeybees, put down a pheromone tracker, return to the nest site of the hornet nest site, you know, rally the troops and then return to that site where they put the pheromone horn uh, marker down by using their smell, and they'll they'll assault the hive, the bunny uh, the beehive. And what they do is they go in there and they pull out the the bees. They cut off their heads with their mandibles, their jaws. They can each uh, hornet can chop, kill a bee every fourteen seconds. They'll throw Ooh. the carcasses outside the hive, and when they've killed all the honeybees, they'll then go back cut open their thoracic cavities and take out their um, their innards and eat that and bring that back to their own nest site to feed to their own uh, young. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, it sounds like a really yummy breakfast. I know a lot of us are out there having our cereal this morning, and we're thinking to ourselves, yeah, a little bit of uh, bee innard is the, uh, is the way to do this thing this morning. Uh, Lawrence, I'm going to level with you. When I first heard about this about 10 days ago, I went into uh, research mode because I was concerned. Uh, among my list of many fears of the great outdoors, uh, wasps, bees, yellow jackets, blue jackets, whatever you want to call them, hornets, murder hornets, it doesn't matter what they are. They all scare me. They all terrify me. Uh, I've read the uh, sting is particularly potent, though, on these great Asian hornets. They say it's the same sort of venom as a, uh, as a regular hornet. It's not the same as a bee. So bee venom and hornet ha- ha- venom are different. The hornet venom, though, in these giants, yeah, I mean, a female um, Asian giant hornet is about two inches long, right? And the wing spread is like a, like a dragonfly. The, the stinger itself is, is five millimeters long. So the stinger is quite tough. It can poke right through. It can go right through your jean jacket or your, your pants. But they don't normally go after humans. I mean, I think in Asia, about 25 deaths are reported every year from these murder hornets. I uh, Probably, you know, you're walking through the forest. You step on one of these nest sites in the ground, and they come after you. And uh, they say maybe if you had 10 stings, you'd probably want to get some medical attention. Is there a concern they could spread throughout North America? They like a cooler... Uh, damp, sort of moist climate that rules out the sort of middle prairie area where, you know, it's hot, you're in the sun. They, they don't really like the north, you know, the, the extreme cold. They're not, but they could definitely hitch a ride on a train or, you know, get across um, the prairies and come into eastern Canada. There's for sure that could happen and, and to the Ooh. southern United States. So there is a there is a chance these could spread for sure and become part of our life. Um, you know, like we said, Dave, it's not something that these things don't fly around killing people and more people just stumble into them somehow or you know, have an interaction with them. They're, in some cultures, actually, they're considered an hors d'oeuvre, and they think maybe they came over that way. Maybe people brought over a small colony just for uh, a snack. <laughs> for a little bit of easy protein. Okay, I like that. If we're looking to eradicate them, how, how do we potentially get rid of them before they spread? Well, you have to sort of get the female before she lays, a, builds another nest in the spring, right? Because once she's developed that nest, then she's got all the eggs laid and they're all fertilized. And, uh, you know, then you've got a potential of a whole new bunch of new queens coming out of there. So what they're doing and just getting one hornet is not going to do the trick either. So they're they're building these traps with bottles, Javex bottles and such, putting a little juice in there. A hornet will fly in, can't get out. Then they'll release the hornet and follow it back and find out where the nest site is. And then once they discover the nest site, you have to really sneak up on these guys because they're, they've they got uh, hornets watching out all day and night. So they're not going to just let you walk in there at night and, and, and go up to them and, and smother them. But they are getting ways to, to kill these things. In Asia, the honeybees over in Asia, they've developed a system where a, a hornet would come along mark their uh, their hive, and then they would surround that hornet, say maybe 100 bees would create a tight ball around that hornet and start flapping their uh, little bee wings. And over about 10, 15, 20 minutes, inside that ball of bees, the temperature would rise and rise and rise to the point after about 20 minutes, the hornet contained within that bee ball would cook and die. But wow. our bees haven't developed that technique, unfortunately. So... Uh, yeah, our bees have no defense against these guys yet. Nature and Darwinism blows my mind, Lawrence. Outdoor tips and tech. Six degrees on your left. 
Tom Ponick, welcome to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. You know, I got your name. Uh, someone brought it up. A mutual friend of ours brought your name up and said, you should talk to Tom. He's a, a beekeeper and he's blind. And I'm like, okay, beekeeping scares the crap out of most people. Doing it blind, is that better or worse? How did you get involved with this? I'm at work one day and a buddy of mine was working. He, uh, he had a contract at my office and he's, I'm just yakking with him over lunch. And he was talking about taking a beekeeping extension course. And he's like, ah, do I want to get bees? Do I not? I kind of looked at him and I said, all right, make you a deal. I'll buy a hive. You buy a hive. Let's just do this. <laughs> I, I had never considered beekeeping yeah. up to that point. Not even, not even close. What do you need to be a successful blind beekeeper? What do you need to start <sighs> with? Well, you need bees, obviously, but there's, there's some things you need. I think it took... A lot of reading kind of in the beginning because you can't see what's going on in there. You have to really learn what is happening in there and just trust that mm. it's, that it's happening the way it is. And, uh, and, and you gotta be willing to get stung. Mm -hmm. If, if you're not willing to take a, take a stinger here and there, you know, it, it, it's not worth it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've got gloves and a suit that I wear, but, They'll go through the gloves and, yeah. you know, I'll be, I'll be reaching in to kind of feel where the comb is and yeah, I'll just feel a prick through the glove. I'm like, Oh, there's another one. <laughs> I, you know, my kids tell me there's videos of people, the beekeepers do it with no, no garment, no protection at all. But is that just crazy YouTubers or what? Not most of the beekeepers that I've worked with here. Yeah, in Manitoba, most of them won't wear veils or gloves. It's a combination of when you get to know the bees, you know, it's like like I'll literally be standing in a cloud of bees, you know, when I'm not checking on them without a suit. Mm -hmm. And because they're, they're fairly docile, they're, they're bred to be docile. Really, the only time you get stung by them is if you pinch them or mm. if you try to crush them and they'll defend themselves. But oh yeah, most, most guys here, oh yeah, they'll, they'll go in. They'll just open, crack open the lid, pull up, stick their hand in, pull out a hive, pull out a frame, wow. covered in bees. Well, that's that, these are European honeybees, right? Is that where you're raising? Yeah, most of them will be European. Um, the ones I've got were based they're, they're European breed bees brought in yeah, that have been kind of genetically bred for Manitoba's winters. Mm -hmm. So they're a little more hardy than the standard European. Uh, other ones you can get are out of New Zealand or Hawaii. Those, those will be the three, three primary. But the, the original source would be European. Bees from Hawaii and in, in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba? That would not go well. Yeah, nope. <laughs> they're probably thinking, what the heck did we do here? It's 40 yeah. below, not 40 above. <laughs> that was a death sentence. How, how many bees do you keep? Right now, I've got two hives. Uh, I was trying to get a third one going this summer, but uh, the queen didn't take. So I'm back to two. And kind of at their peak, you can imagine between 60 and 80,000 bees. Yeah. In each hive? In each hive. Wow. And they come out as a cloud in the morning? Oh, yeah. So, so what they do is they'll, they'll do what they call orientation flights. So when the 
bees emerge from their comb. They'll spend a week or so basically acting as nurse bees. They never leave the hive. And then all at once, all the bees that emerged on that on a day a week ago will all come out of the hive and they basically just swarm around the entrance and fly in circles. And you just hear this. It's a really interesting sound where you, if you stand kind of right behind them, you hear bees looping around, up, down, left, right. And it's a very unique hum to it. Wow. That, wow. that they're learning and they're orienting. This is our hive. This is where we come back to at the end of the day. Now, if I heard that, I would just run. <laughs> yeah, it, it is quite loud. It sounds, most people would assume it sounds angry, but yeah. you know, but I mean, me listening to them, I know the difference between angry bee and normal bee. Yeah. And, and there is a very slight difference in sound. Describe that. Describe the difference. It's a more, it's a higher pitch and the they day. get upset. You can actually hear the pitch level goes up a couple of octaves, hmm. you know, and it's, I'll be in the hive, I'll be working. And I know when I'm getting close to their brood nest, because all of a sudden the, the, the hum will go up an octave or two. And I'm like, okay, I'm close. I know there's brood close by. And that's, that's a no go. You don't go there, I guess. You leave those guys alone. I still pull them out and because uh, you got to check for swarm cells. When the hive is strong, they'll do basically like a cell division where they'll raise another queen oh. hanging. So she'll be hanging on the bottom of these, this, this wax cell hanging on the bottom of the frame that the honeycomb's in. Yeah. And I've got to go in, pull the frame out. I've got a brush. I'll use basically brush off the bees on the bottom. And then I've got a tool, it's a hive tool, where you basically just run it down the side and you scrape those off. If you don't, half the bees in the queen leave and oh, go yeah. set up shop in someone's wall or something. Some, somewhere where they're not expected. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that would be a surprise. You know, you open up your garden shed to get the lawnmower out and 40,000 bees swoop out. Oh yeah, oh yeah, they'll they'll do it. And it's like so you got to be every, every seven to ten days. I'll open them up and basically just pull the swarm cells off, just yeah. just to keep them put. Any special technology you use in in this beekeeping uh, project of yours? Is there a, like a special hum beater or something like that? Or yeah, nothing, nothing really. It's all based on your ear, based on feel and and go i mean it's like there are some things that i'm still working on and i got to figure out like how to check you know queen patterning and all that so i've I've got buddies that come by every couple of weeks and you know we open them up have a beer and uh and then they kind of be visual assistants to look at the actual larvae i'm still working on a way to uh to do that more independently but it's it's a learning it's a learning process yeah but you sound like you're well along the path of understanding this. I mean, you've got two successful highs with uh, you know, like close to 150,000 bees that depend on your uh, providing the housing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think this is my fifth season now. Successfully extracted honey a couple of times and just kind of kind of keep the cycle going. So one thing I've learned with bees, the first, what happened last year, be completely different the year after. Huh. What do you mean? 
Yeah, you, you think you had a good year. You think, oh, I did. And then all of a sudden, you do the exact same thing next year. The bees, who knows, right? The bees might think, oh, the weather's bad. They'll kill the queen. Wow. And, and raise another one. So all of a sudden, you're stuck. Why is my hive small? Yeah. This is weird. It's like different differences in weather, differences in humidity, heat. It varies every year. Are there other variables that are impacting your bees from time to time that you've noticed? Uh, mosquito fogging, right? You got to watch oh, for, yeah. you know, pesticide control. So I've, I've got a buffer zone here that, that you got to do. Uh, just people in the neighborhood, what they're growing. If, if it's more flowers, you'll actually find if, if it's more ornamental flowers, the honey tastes sweeter. Like it's got a f- almost a flowery taste to it hmm. versus if it's more food crop and all that. Oh yeah, it, it's, there's lots of things that, that that'll mix them up. So winds, right? Ventilation. Fungus and molds and things fungus. like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. They can get sick. They'll get foul brood. If you smell something funky that you never smelt before, yeah. they've got foul brood. And then what, what do you do? You have to clean it all out and start over? Pretty much. At that point, it's you can try using um, antibiotics on them. But if it gets too bad, basically the only way to get rid of it, you burn it. Wow. You know, you hear on the radio these advertisements for mosquito control in your backyard. Are they using pesticides in people's yards to kill mosquitoes? Sometimes they'll, they'll use, you can get the malathion foggers. Some of them are like the citronella coil, you know, big, big citronella smokers, stuff like that. And that. That'll impact the bees as well. And I mean, they're going five kilometers in any direction so can't control everything any close calls tom you know thankfully so i've been stung countless times and i must be immune to it now sometimes i don't uh, realize i got stung and like oh there's a stinger in there hmm. whoops well friends of one friend of mine who who was helping was stung right in the head and uh, turned out she was allergic so oh, oh boy she no longer helps out but uh, yeah, wow. thankfully nothing for me. Yeah, yeah. I guess if you were allergic, you would have figured that out a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Before I did this, I talked to my doctor. Hey, doc, yeah, doing this. I'm assuming uh, if I get stung and I bump into hives, uh, call the ambulance. Yeah, that's probably the best option. <laughs> so your, your personal life insurance didn't go up, I guess. Tell them what you're doing. <laughs> no, thankfully. Well, I get my uh, health insurance and life insurance through, uh, through work. So yeah. thankfully hasn't gone up. <laughs> Tom, this is amazing. I, I totally admire your courage and your sense of humor about all this. And, uh, and the fact that you, you're doing this, you're, you know, you've got all these little lives that depend on you. And uh, you're their sugar daddy. <laughs> Pretty much. Well, that's what we feed them in the winter. Is it? Yeah. I, uh, oh, yeah. It, the honey will actually freeze in the winter. Yeah. So we give them a sugar syrup and it's got a lower freezing temperature. I just would assume they just all go and hibernate all winter, but they're not, are they? They're not sleeping. No, they, their metabolism slows. They basically move through the hive and it's, I've got a mechanic, like an engineering stethoscope that I'll check on them in the winter and yeah. I'll kind of stick it into the door and I'll move it. I'll listen and I, you can kind of tell where they are. You just kind of move it slowly and then you'll hear the hum out of one corner and you can hear them just humming along as they're keeping warm. And 
moving up and around the hive. Well, just sharing their body heat. Pretty much. They'll, they'll condense into the size of a basketball, I'm told. Wow. Uh, 60,000 bees. Yeah. That would be an impressive uh, thing to feel, eh? Oh, goodness, yeah. I mean, in the spring, it's, you know, there's a lot of dead ones on the bottom as they age out and uh, and fall down. But uh, just the, the sound of, mm. of that when you open them up and there's that many bees, it's, you're so focused and it's you're just listening, paying attention. You know, God, people could be driving by and saying, hey, look at bees. And I'd never notice. No, you're in you're in a, almost a Zen state. Oh, yeah, pretty much. It's one of the most meditative things I've ever done. Sure, there's lots of bugs outside. Thinking about them too much, though, can be a real deterrent to getting outdoors. We'll walk along busy roads with cars whipping by us, and we hardly give it a thought until it's time to cross the street. You only need to worry about bugs when they start to bite. You can start off with bug repellent, or try this list of things and you may not need bug repellent. First off, don't wear blue. Black flies and other flies are attracted to the color blue. Don't wave your arms around if there's bugs nearby, they're attracted to movement. Avoid wearing perfumes or aftershave, scented body creams, deodorants, things that have smells, even downy on your clothes. That can all attract bugs as well. Bugs are attracted to the CO2 in our breath. The harder you're breathing, the quicker they're going to find you. And last, stay cool. Bugs can detect body heat. Basically, stay calm. Try not to attract a lot of attention to yourself. And if that doesn't work, a little bit of bug repellent with some deed in it around your neck and ears, your wrists and ankles, and you should be fine. Remember, if you're going into heavy brush, tuck your pants into your socks Put a little spray around your wrists and ankles and make sure you've got tick guard for your guide dog. You want to be checking for ticks at the end of the day. Check your dog all over. Check yourself as well. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, Sam Robinson, and Paula Deneen. They're my technicians. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.